Hi, everybody. This is Peter Diamandis here with Dan Sullivan. Welcome to another episode of Exponential Wisdom. Hey, Dan. How you doing? How you doing, Peter? Been reading any bad news lately? Actually, not. I actually don't subscribe to a newspaper, and I for sure do not watch CNN, which, as you know, I call the constantly negative news network or the crisis news network or the constantly negative news network because that's all we see. How about you? Do you... I mean, what do you do with this? Do you watch the news? Actually, I'm just the opposite. So together, we're watching a lot of news because (laughs) I actually learned how to deal with this as kind of a child. My mother, who I think she was living vicariously through me because she was born in 1910 and she was a woman and she couldn't do a lot of things in the teens and 20s and 30s growing up. I just have a birth order where I spend a lot of time with my mom and my dad So 1950 is when I started first grade. I hated school from start to finish. I don't hate any school that I don't own and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) that I'm getting paid to run for, (laughs) except for like Peter Diamandis or Joe Polish or people (laughs) who create that kind of school. But anyway, she could tell about a month after I was into it that I wasn't doing well. You know, I showed up, I did what I was supposed to do. And I, you know, I was a successful student, but my heart wasn't in it. She said, I just want to tell you two things. She said, reading is more important than going to school. She says, because once you learn how to read, you can go anywhere in your mind, and you can go far, far beyond what you're being taught in school. And number two is that if you pay attention to what's happening in the world, it's actually a lot more important than listening to your teacher, because your teacher is just teaching you what she was taught. And by paying attention to the world, you'll learn how to teach yourself. And this is at six years old. It's just massive freedom. And she said, you have to go to school and you have to graduate. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so that was the deal. And 1950, you were looking at the Cold War. You were looking at the Truman administration, the whole communist, the investigations in the U.S. were on. Lots of really, really interesting things. Eisenhower became president within two years. And I just got fixated on watching what happens in the world But I developed kind of an attitude, Peter, that what I was hearing as commentary, whether it was print commentary, I started off on radio, so we didn't get our television until 53, and what was being told to me was an interpretation. It was somebody else's point of view. What they were talking about wasn't necessarily my point of view. So what I've tried to do is to receive the information that's being communicated, but develop my own point of view about it. I tend to, whenever there's crises or breakdowns, I tend to be of the same mind as you are, that the biggest problems in the world are the biggest entrepreneurial opportunities, actually. So I just keep looking at the development of incredible new opportunities that are being developed in the world as things that are no longer useful are falling apart and things are failing. Just to be clear to people, it's not that I have zero news coming to my life. I actually filter my news Mm -hmm. And I use Google News to give me alerts on things that I care about. I have a funny situation here at XPRIZE headquarters where I'm recording this right now in Culver City. There is a television in the lobby that is constantly broadcasting the Crisis News Network. I play a game every time I walk in, and you can do this at your office or at the airport, which is I read the headlines of what CNN has up any time. And 95% of the time, I would say, it's got death, destruction, 
nuclear, murder, just all of these in big, bold letters, just the negativism. Mm -hmm. And it's really to capture your attention. And the challenge is, and I want people to realize this, the news networks are in the business, I call them drug dealers, and their drug is negative news. They're in the business of capturing your attention because their goal is to deliver your eyeballs to their advertisers. And it turns out that we as humans pay 10 times more attention on the average to negative news than positive news. The old saying, if it bleeds, it leads, is paramount. And the reason is that our brains evolved in ancient times on the savannas of Africa. And we have a piece of our temporal lobe about the size of your thumb called the amygdala. And the amygdala scans everything you see and everything you hear. And if you see a piece of good news, well, okay, good. If you missed in old times a piece of negative news, like a squiggle on the ground is a snake and not a stick, your genes could be out of the gene pool. So the amygdala is your early warning system. Mm -hmm. You pay a lot more attention. And so the negativism that the news gives us is to capture your mind share. I always ask the question, why aren't there any good news networks? Well, the good news networks don't financially succeed. They fail. We don't pay attention to them. Then the question you have to ask yourself is, does CNN give you a balanced view of the world? And I'm not saying that what they put out there is not true. It's just they don't deliver all the amazing stuff going on in nanomaterials and AI and robotics and synthetic biology and 3D printing and people saving other people. They just, every murder on the planet is broadcast to you in high definition over and over and over again. And Dan, you know about this more than anybody. It affects how you think, mm -hmm. right? Negativism affects your mindset. I read this really, really interesting article. It was about the thing called the bliss gene. They're discovering that about 20% of people are born with a gene that is kind of a gene without fear. Like you don't really, really fear things that much. And that where it would panic other people or it would depress other people or make other people severely anxious and everything else, the news comes across and they're just not affected by this. The article is really, really interesting because they were saying that probably most innovation, most art comes out of people with these bliss genes. And the reason is because they're taking in the input or they're ignoring the input, but they're just doing something different with their brains. And then the question at the end of the article say, well, we should get a hold of this gene, you know, and maybe we can make everybody that way. And they say, probably know that the general survival of the planet probably needs about 80% of people who get, you know, are always responding to the negative side. You know, I don't know anything about that. But I just want to give you a little history on what's happened to the news media, because the reason why CNN is giving you depressing news is because the people who work at CNN are very, very depressed human beings right now. <laughs> okay, and I'll just give you a little statistics on this. First of all, they've lost massive market share which means they've lost massive advertising dollars. They're desperate. This is a profession generally, but then there are specific organizations which are just not attracting people's attention anymore. CNN was the 24-hour news program. They had a monopoly, a world monopoly. If you go back 25 years, they had the monopoly. 
they could afford to do really positive things because they had the monopoly. They were adding bureaus, they were adding jobs, salaries were going up, promotions were going up, they could do specials and everything else. So you take that, that actually, I don't think they're being liars, and I don't think that they're being manipulative when they give you a lot of negative news, Peter. I think that if you're an employee at CNN and you've seen 15 of your friends and colleagues fired or they just left out of frustration over the last 15 years, well, what's your own approach to the future? I mean, you're thinking the future is just terrible. It's getting worse. And I could name the major mainstream, ABC, CBS, NBC, same thing with them. Some of the financial news networks are really doing the best because they have an audience that's looking for really interesting opportunities. They're interviewing you. You would never be interviewed on CNN. Your positivity would depress them. Well, I guess I'm the side feature because they do once in a while interview me. But it goes even a step further, right, which is because the news media is going down the tubes to a large degree, they're now trying to be more extreme to capture your attention. The challenge I have is when, for example, the Malaysian airliner went down and I would walk in my building here and that's all that was shown for three months straight. Mm-hmm. And so they get stuck on one subject mm-hmm. and my, you know, I'm going, is there no other news on the mm-hmm. planet that's worth watching other than this? I mean, with all due respect to these families that mm-hmm. lost families on this airliner, I mean, is there no other news on the planet? And my concern is that it's an addiction. Negative news can become an addiction. You become glued to these stories mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can lose countless hours. And mm-hmm. And time is one of our most precious commodities. So... My recommendation to people is step over the newspaper, Mm -hmm. turn off CNN, and actually use that time. You can do a scan on the news through your social networks. Things that are important Mm -hmm. to you or your business will come through your social networks or come via Google News Feeds. But it's a way to really recover an hour, two hours a day. Having said that, the point you made earlier, which I do agree, understanding problems is understanding business opportunities. The world's biggest challenges, mm-hmm. the world's biggest business opportunities. Those things are true. But man, oh man, I feel abused by the news media in the yeah. way that they deal with these stories. One of the things that I've taken a look at the crucial period just prior to 1800, because the world just changed that the whole exponential journey that the planet has been on really, really starts, actually, you can almost pinpoint it. It's a very interesting date. It's 1776, which has great meaning in the United States. But the U.S. is certainly one of the important factors in 1776. But the other one is that Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, where he talked about competitive advantage and the division of labor. That same year, the first incredibly profitable steam engine came online, and the emergence of the exponential age really starts the first time you have a multiplier force in the world, and you had had compound interest before, but where you could actually have a mechanical material multiplier in the world really, really starts with steam. This was in Great Britain, and all three of those happened in 1776. And all of a sudden, you start to see a curve, you know, it's kind of like Ray Kurzweil's curve, you know, that he takes back to computing to the 1890s. But the real curve that we're talking about in three areas, one of them is longevity. 
the average lifespan goes up. The other thing that goes up very significantly is population. And the third thing that goes up is per capita income. You start to see, actually, there's a very, very interesting factor that it's a factor of 17 that I came up with a per capita income on the planet is basically, and this is real dollars, we're not not inflationary dollars, but real dollars, per capita income is up about 17 times against a population of 7 billion people, you know, so the population is up seven times, per capita is up 17 times, average lifespan has now been pretty well tripled since that point. Now, here's the thing, what we've lost in the last 200 years is the guarantee of scarcity, Peter. And I think this is very, very disturbing to Hmm. a lot of vested interests whose entire prominence in the world, their entire power in the world was really based on manipulating scarcity. And I would say the intellectual classes are very, very much part and parcel of this. What you are spearheading in the world with the abundance and bold message is that you're depriving a whole class of people who have lived off scarcity. You're depriving them of an opportunity, and they are doubling down on negativity to see if they can shut out your message. And it really is the alignment between negativity and scarcity versus a positive mindset and abundance for most of all human existence a business would be you would put a wall around a set of resources, whether they were a set of minds, human intelligence, or around resources like an oil well or a diamond mine, and then you would sell it out at an elevated price because it was scarce. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, and this is all about abundance, that there are very few things in the world that are truly scarce right now. Yes. And they're fighting hard to keep the news of this from breaking out because a lot of people just lose their commentating value if there's no scarcity to talk about. Yeah, I mean, think about the things we hold of value. Energy, we don't have an energy scarcity. We're discovering more and more energy sources on the planet. And the fact is we have 5,000 times more energy from the sun hitting the surface of the earth than we consume as a species in a year. Mm-hmm. My friends, Ray Kurzweil, Elon Musk, you know, and the numbers I look at project that the U.S. will be meeting 50 to 100 percent of its energy needs from the sun. Yeah. And that's effectively free energy. If you have free energy, abundant energy, you have abundant water. We talk about this water crisis here in California where I live, and it's pathetic that California is right next to the biggest body of water on planet (laughs) Earth, the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. There are technologies coming online right now for materials like graphene and others that will allow us to transform salt water into drinkable water. Yeah, Yeah, it's really interesting. I had a friend here in Toronto, this is 25 years ago, who was personal friends with the daughter of Moshe Dayan, who was one of the very famous Israeli generals. And Moshe Dayan was born in Israel. He wasn't a European immigrant, and he took my friend out one day, and he said, you know, the number one issue here, he says, it's water. He says, the whole Middle East, he says, if people talk about oil or everything else, he says, if you trace every fight back to its beginning in the Middle East, it's over water. And he said, you know, we're going to solve this problem here in Israel. You know, in Israel is in the foremost advanced technology and desalinization 
Israel right now is almost water independent. And so much of the problem, I mean, we live in Canada and the United States. Between the two countries, Canada and the United States, there's half the fresh water on the planet. I'm being very, very kind to the United States there because (laughs) most of it actually comes from Canada because most of the rivers in the world flow south, you know, so a lot of the water in the United States actually comes from Canada, but Canadians would never promote themselves in that way. So the United States, we can say both countries. You're talking about 350 million, 360 million people got half the fresh water on the planet, and that's just by where you were born. But what you're talking about, Peter, with the Pacific, I mean, the vast majority of the planet is water, and all it requires is the energy, really, really plentiful, cheap, and reliable energy to get a cost so low that you can just turn undrinkable water, unusable water, into fresh water. One of my favorite examples, in addition to water, is diamonds. Because when you think about scarcity, you think it's valuable because it's scarce. We think of a diamond's And it's a perfect example of people sort of creating artificial scarcity to drive up the cost Mm -hmm. for this little piece of carbon. And there are two things, and you, Dan, you know so much about so many things. You probably have some stories here. But two things I want to point out. One is the reason that diamonds are scarce is because there's huge reserves that are retained by the various diamond suppliers. But I advise a company out of the Bay Area that's just – built these machines that I've seen, I've touched, advising, that actually uses a vapor gas deposition, methane and water and energy go in one end of the machine, and Mm -hmm. perfect diamonds come out the other, and they're building (laughs) these diamonds 150 (laughs) times faster than ever before. So imagine if diamonds cost 20 bucks a carat in the future. We will go that way. I imagine for the women watching (laughs) and listening to the show here, your boyfriend, your husband comes with a 100-carat diamond. Man, that's just it's a couple hundred bucks. You know, <laughs> I want the diamond with the flaws in it, not the perfect diamond. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. It's like Picasso's daughter, you know, and perhaps the most famous artist of the 20th century. He died, and he left her 15,000 drawings. <laughs> and everybody says, geez, that must be worth trillions of dollars. And I said, only if you let him go four or five at a time. <laughs> All the wealth that he left her in terms of the drawings, she'll die unless she gets to HLI before. <laughs> before she monetizes them. She won't get to the thousand mark before she dies, you know, because if she flooded the market with them, you know, they'd be wrapping candy bars with them, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so to wrap up the message here for folks, I guess it's really important. Your mindset matters. Your mindset matters so much because if you view the world as going to hell in a handbasket as negative, you're not going to want to get out of bed. You're not going to want to invest. You're not going to see opportunity. And I want people mostly to realize that we're living during the most extraordinary time ever in human history, a time where we can make our grandest dreams come true, where we really are able to solve the world's biggest problems. And do not let the Crisis News Network get you down. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they can't pay me enough to be watching their news. And then the second thing is when you think something is truly scarce, I want you to think about how could you make it abundant? Because I do believe we're heading towards a world where there is very little that is truly scarce. Yeah. So between abundance and a positive mindset, I think it's an important part of my life, mm-hmm. and I really believe your life as well. 
the thing that I would say is remember that probably the cause of every piece of bad news in the world, I mean, there's accidents that happen to people, but generally when there's things like starvation, remember that this is the manipulation of scarcity that's actually going on. There's enough food for everybody to eat healthily on the planet right now. There's massive amounts of the agriculture productivity on the planet has followed the same exponential pattern as any other technology on the planet. I've actually spent more time reading communist and socialist literature in my life than I have capitalists. And the reason is because I was trying to see how people who pride themselves on being more intelligent than other people, how they actually think. And I remember Trotsky. Trotsky was one of the revolutionaries who pulled off the communist revolution in Russia in 1917. And he was very forthright. He says, you know, here's the game plan. We're going to get every single Russian to be an employee of the state. And he says, because if they're an employee of the state, if they don't do what we want, they don't eat. And I said, boy, that's pretty straightforward game plan, you know, so it's the... Brutal. Yeah, brutal. And they had massive starvation. But it wasn't just food. It was every other thing that makes individuals free, everything else that makes individuals successful. You deprive them of it. You regulate them and you tax them and everything else because otherwise you have no power. I mean, I'm seeing it with... We should do a whole episode in the future on Uber, the impact not just of Uber as a company, but the whole principle of Uber, where you now create an algorithm that allows a customer and a provider of service to actually counteract business in a way that needs no manipulation in the middle. The French have just banned Uber as a company. Worse than that, right? Their CEO in France and their general manager of Europe went to jail. Yes. Let's do that. Let's do the next one on the sharing economy and on oh, yeah. Uber in specific. I think it's a great... Yeah, I should say with great pride that here in Toronto, the taxi union with enormous political support tried to get Uber banned, but the Supreme Court of Ontario said it's probably time for the taxi industry of Toronto to get into the 21st century. Man, you know, you're making me want to be Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dan, thank you for your time today, as always. So sharing economy and Uber next? Yes, that'd be great. Cool. Take care, everybody. Take care, Dan. Bye.